You're listening to the New City Church Sermon Podcast. We exist to love God, to love our neighbors, and to make known the good news of Jesus Christ. To this end, we seek to cultivate a spirit-filled, gospel-centered community that multiplies disciples of Jesus and churches for the glory of God, the joy of all people, and the good of the city. If you'd like to learn more about New City, including service times, discipleship pathways, and opportunities to serve and fellowship with us, please visit us online at newcitykc.org. All right. Good morning, New City. How are we all doing today? Excellent. Have you all uh, recovered from last week's or this past week's Super Bowl festivities? I'm still a little bit edgy, I think, but I think we'll, we'll get through it together. Um, the sermon series or the sermon we're in today is part of the series entitled Jesus on Every Page. It's going to be the last one we do for a while um, as we kind of take a break for our Lent series. From imminent writings and calls to repentance to the people of his day, to assurances of deliverance from an exile that is to come, to eschatological promises of a world made new. Isaiah really has it all. And the question before us is how do we approach such a large and multifaceted book, especially in the short amount of time that we have this morning? So for our purposes today, I'd like to recommend that we look at the book of Isaiah like a photo mosaic. In a photo mosaic, there are a myriad of smaller pictures that come together to form one grand image. I still remember the first time I saw a photo mosaic. It was in the movie theater. It was a poster for the Truman Show in like 98 or 99. And I, I think photo mosaics were new then. And I didn't know what it was until I got up close. And then I'm just fascinated by all these small little images that make up this one big picture of Truman or Jim Carrey. Um, and um, while it can be fascinating sort of to immerse ourselves like I did and go up close to these individual pictures and, and look at each one and try and figure out what it is, our eyes are always meant to be drawn to the whole. And when we come to an Old Testament book of prophecy like Isaiah, it's all too easy for us to either get caught up looking at like the individual pictures, seeking to understand each one on its own, or conversely, to get overwhelmed with the sheer volume and move on to an easier, more linear text. However, like like a prophetic photo mosaic, if we stand back from the book of Isaiah, the grand design or narrative, what we're going to call the gospel of Isaiah, comes into focus. The story of God's redemptive work throughout history the good news of his coming kingdom, his plan to rescue his people from the bondage of sin and brokenness, and his promise to restore and renew his good creation. So with that in mind, I'd like to invite you guys to open your Bibles with me to Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. We'll begin here with this familiar passage, and then, or familiar to many of us, I'm sure, and then dive into the grand gospel mosaic Isaiah lays out by looking at four pictures that consistently recur throughout the whole of his book. So look with me, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we just ask that as we open your word, 
as we come to this ancient book, Lord, that your spirit would move in our hearts, Lord, that as your, your spirit would breathe out these words some 2,700 years ago, we pray that that same spirit would illuminate them to us this morning, God, that we would hear from you, that we would see you, that we would um, grow closer to you as we read the words of Scripture this morning. Would you open our hearts just to hear from you, Lord, open our minds just to see you anew, God, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, Lord, through this book of Isaiah, Lord, from this through this gospel of Isaiah, God, this good news that you have for your people, Lord. I pray that you would meet us this morning with it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so you guys may have recognized that passage um, from the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel account. Because we were told that when Jesus began his ministry, Luke says he did so by reading this passage in Isaiah. And then when Jesus finished reading those verses that we just read, he said that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, if you've been sitting in that ancient synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, you would have probably found Jesus' words both compelling and confusing compelling because the passage we read spoke of the promised Messiah, the one who God would send to set all to rights and bring about the restoration of Israel and the renewed blessing of God upon his people. But confusing because sitting among them was none other than the son of a carpenter, of Joseph and Mary. How could this moment, how could this man possibly be the fulfillment of this ancient promise? After all, there was no Davidic king in Jerusalem. The people of God were still subject to the rule of Rome. And the promised land, far from being restored, was divided between petty governors and puppet rulers. If anything, the promise seemed farther off in Jesus' day than when the prophecy had first been recorded centuries earlier. At least then there had been a king and a kingdom. Yet this was the passage that Jesus chose to use to inaugurate his work on earth. It was his mission statement, summing up the good news that he would declare, the healing and deliverance he would bring, the love and grace he would demonstrate, and the forgiveness and salvation he would make a way for. See, Jesus knew that the prophet Isaiah had glimpsed his coming from afar. He knew that God had opened the prophet's eyes to see in part the unfolding story of redemption and the rescue plan that was being played out on the very stage of history. And God had tasked Isaiah with sharing this good news with his people. Now, Isaiah, the man himself, he stands out a bit in history as a mystery, That wasn't supposed to rhyme. History is a mystery. He stands out as a historical mystery. Anyways, for all that we have from him, in terms of his prophecies, his words, his oracles, we have little biographical information about him. We know that he lived in or near Jerusalem and ministered in the second half, through most of the second half of the 8th century um, BC and the early decades of the 7th century. So that's like the late 700s, early 600s, which was a time of great upheaval and uncertainty for God's people. 
During the long years that Isaiah ministered, several kings would come and go in Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel at the time. And Samaria, the northern kingdom of Israel, would fall entirely. Over those years that he was prophesying, mighty nations would rise, other powers would fail, and still greater threats would be seen on the horizon. By his own account, Isaiah um, tells us in chapter 6 that he experienced a specific, a specific calling to ministry in the final year of the reign of King Uzziah. Now this is significant because Uzziah had reigned for a long time in Jerusalem, 52 years. And under his lengthy rule, Judah had experienced an extended time of relative peace and prosperity. The regional powers of that day, Egypt in the south, Assyria in the north, were, they were otherwise occupied, which allowed Judah to, to flourish for the first half of the 8th century BC, achieving a level of independence and security that would not last much longer. However, toward the end of Uzziah's reign, a shadow fell. The king, who had long walked humbly and led the people imperfectly but righteously, this king, he grew prideful, he grew arrogant, and he approached God in a way that was inappropriate. And God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. So this promising reign, this long reign, ended with this shadow. And when he died around the year of 740 BC, the fortunes of Judah began to shift. Even though he was followed by his son Jotham, who also ruled God's people well, the security that Judah had been experiencing under Uzziah was slipping away. And as Jotham's reign gave way to his son Ahaz's, who did not walk in the ways of God, was not what you'd call a good king. The specter of the Assyrian Empire began to loom large once again over the Promised Land. And it was in this setting, in this time of transition and uncertainty, that God revealed himself to Isaiah and called him to minister. The king had died. Judah was failing. But Isaiah was given a vision of a great and a holy king who was Lord of heaven and earth, who was high and exalted, who was ruling, who was reigning in glory and power. And, and this God, this king, commissioned Isaiah to bear the word, his words to a people who would not hear them. Yet the words he was called to bear, the message he had, was one of great hope. And even though it was fell upon deaf ears during the prophet's lifetime, his message would endure and finally come to fruition in the advent of Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that in a minute. So what was this message? Well, in a way, it's best summed up in the author's name, Isaiah, which means Yahweh is salvation. See, the prophet was ministering to a people who felt trapped and overwhelmed by the realities of the world in which they lived. They looked all around them for security and for salvation. They turned to Egypt. They turned to Assyria. They finally looked to Babylon. But they wouldn't humble themselves and return to the one who could truly save. Yet in spite of their refusal to turn to him, God would not abandon his people. And so he sent the prophet Isaiah, his messenger, to proclaim to them the good news that even though their story was looking dark, the author wasn't finished, and the end 
would somehow be better than the beginning. And even though the kingdom was in ruins, the true king was was coming to set all to rights. And even though the people were sinful and rebellious, God's servant savior was coming to take their sin and rebellion upon himself. And even though the whole of creation was broken, the creator was still at work and he was making all things new. These four pictures in various forms recur throughout this lengthy book and together compromise or comprise, not compromise, comprise the gospel of Isaiah. And these are what Jesus is picking up on and promising to fulfill when he read the prophet's scroll centuries later in that Galilean synagogue. So with our time together this morning, I'd like us to look at each of these and consider how they come together to comprise this beautiful gospel mosaic and how they point to the person and work of Christ. You guys with me? Okay, so we're going to jump around a bit in the book of Isaiah primarily, actually entirely. Um, So I'm going to have some scriptures on the screen behind me. If they don't keep up, it's okay. If you don't keep up in the book, it's okay. I'm going to read them, but I just want to give you guys a heads up. So first, the first picture that reoccurs over and over is, even though the story was dark, the author wasn't finished. You look in Isaiah chapter 39. This chapter concludes one of those few narrative sections in Isaiah we mentioned earlier, in which we see the prophet engaging with Hezekiah, one of the last good kings of Judah. God had just finished delivering Jerusalem from the invading armies of Assyria that had surrounded and besieged the city. And he just healed Hezekiah of a severe illness that was leading to death. However, in Hezekiah's confidence and maybe his complacency, the king had just welcomed envoys from Babylon and had shown them all the treasures of his kingdom, thinking perhaps to impress them or earn their respect. However, upon hearing that, upon hearing what Hezekiah had done, Isaiah said to him in verses 5 to 7, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up to this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be made eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So here, just when things seem to be turning for the better, the prophet gives a peek of what's to come in the not-so-distant future, and, and it isn't pretty. Though, though Hezekiah is relieved, these days won't come in his lifetime, which might say something about him. There is a pall, a darkness cast over the story. God's people, even the children of the line of David, will be carried away and made slaves in the land of Babylon. Far from a return to the days of Uzziah, let alone of David, the days ahead were looking bleak. Jerusalem, which had just survived the onslaught of Assyria, would not prevail against this new enemy from the east. The line of David, which had continued on the throne of Jerusalem for three centuries, would soon be taken into bondage in a faraway land. It was a dark future indeed. Not exactly the happy ending that you might hope for here. But turning the page in chapter 40, the book of Isaiah leaves this narrative 
portion behind and returns again to recording the oracles of the prophet. And, and this new section opens with a promise that the story does not end in darkness. Their road does not terminate in Babylon. But God promises to comfort his people, to deliver them from their captivity, and to bring them home once again. Look at verses 3 through 5 and then 10 to 11. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be laid low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now jump down to verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So these verses, this whole chapter actually, is, is full of metaphors. We've got valleys being lifted up and mountains laid low. But the long and the short of it is, while, while Israel had turned their back on God's story, God would not turn his back on them. He promised that he would not abandon his people to exile and captivity, but that he would come to them. He would make a way for them. He would bring them up out of bondage and do so in such a way as to reveal his glorious provision. The divine author was not writing his people out of his story, but he was setting the stage for a greater revelation of his love for them, of his grace toward them, and his power on their behalf. So even though their story seemed dark, the author wasn't finished. The second picture that we see in Isaiah that recurs throughout the book is that of a ruined kingdom and the coming king. A ruined kingdom and the coming king. From the very first chapter of Isaiah, the dire state of the kingdom of Judah is made plain. Look no further than chapter 1, verse 4, where we, hear, we see the words, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. So here we have a picture of the people of Israel and the people of Israel, mind you, they already inhabit a broken kingdom. It had been two centuries since they had last been united under the reign of Solomon. And even then, by the end of his reign, idolatry and corrupt practices had started to become commonplace among them. But by the time Isaiah began prophesying in Jerusalem, the northern kingdom of Israel was less than 20 years from falling completely and had utterly given themselves over to syncretized religion that was steeped in pagan worship. And Judah, the southern kingdom, though they had the temple of God in their midst, they were following suit. And the prophet said, as the prophet said, they despised the Lord's presence, his presence in his temple, his presence in their midst, and they looked to other nations for answers. They sought lesser gods to worship, and they oppressed the poor. They neglected the widow, and they abandoned the orphan among them. So not a good situation. From a historical perspective, it could be said that the only reason Judah managed to stumble on for as long as it did was due in large part to the ongoing conflicts and internal strife that distracted the larger imperial powers around them. 
in the 8th century. But from a prophetic perspective, God was giving his people time to repent. He was giving his people the opportunity to return to him. However, they wouldn't turn from their ways. And so, as Isaiah had warned Hezekiah, they would be conquered and taken away into captivity. The royal line of David, far from the throne of Jerusalem, would languish as exiles in Babylon. But just as their story would not end in darkness, neither would their kingdom, would God's kingdom end in ruin, for the true king was coming. David's greater offspring was on the horizon, and he would set all to rights. So turn to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2, 6, and 7. Sorry, my papers keep wanting to fall off the stand, so I have to fight this. Isaiah 9, verses 2, 6, and 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Jump down to six. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Excuse me. <clears throat> so we know these verses from our Christmas readings every year. So when we hear them, we, we readily associate these verses with the birth of Jesus Christ, right? You guys know those verses? However, when Isaiah first uttered them, they would have contrasted immediately with the cruel and unjust rule of King Ahaz. And generations later, when they read these verses, they would have evoked hope in the heart of the exiles that God would again establish his kingdom on earth and would restore the line of David to the throne. But there's an added wrinkle here where the kings of Israel, even David, had been servants or stewards, ruling the people under the authority of God. Isaiah proclaimed in these verses that this coming king would not only be a son of David, but would be God himself. And the kingdom that he would establish would have no end. Somehow God himself was coming and would rule his people as their king. And so even though the kingdom was in ruins, even though its kings of the day, the Ahazes of the day, were corrupt, even though its cities were been laid waste, its people would be carried away, the true king was still coming, and he would set all to rights. There would finally be peace and justice and righteousness for all and for all ways. The zeal of the Lord, the Lord himself, would bring it to pass. You guys with me? Okay, so that's two pictures. So picture three that we see recurring throughout this mosaic. Thanks. I actually have a water bottle here, but thanks. I bring it up. I set it there. I open the cap, and then I never drink it. I think it's because it breaks my, makes my stride. I'm not sure, but... Thank you, Andrew. Where were we? Oh, yes. The third picture, this third picture that we see recurring throughout the mosaic of Isaiah 
is that even though God's people were sinful and rebellious, God's servant Savior was coming to take their sin and rebellion upon himself. As we've already seen, God's people in Isaiah's day were, well, they were a mess. They, they worshipped, sorry, stay. <clears throat> they worshipped the Lord on Saturday and offered sacrifices to Moloch and Baal on Monday. They raised their hands in prayer to God in heaven, but they turned their backs on the oppressed and the downtrodden in their streets. They lusted after the wealth and power of their enemies and neglected to love their neighbor. Isaiah summed up their worship from God's point of view in chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. <clears throat> when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts, says the Lord? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Not a pretty picture. The people that God had called and set apart to be his own, to set his name upon, were no different than the nations around them. They were even worse because they had been given God's law and they disobeyed it. They had received God's blessings and they hoarded them and squandered them. They had his very presence in their midst, and they disregarded it. Oh, sure, they were, they were still religious. They still brought their token offerings. They still burnt ritual incense. They still mouthed prayers. But the Lord couldn't abide their worship anymore. Their hearts were far from him. Their lives were lived in opposition to him. So what would he do? What would God do? How could this possibly be, possibly be made right? Could his people turn and repent and return to him? What of the blood on their hands? Could it be washed off? <clears throat> We're given the answer in chapter 53. Another passage is probably familiar to many of us. We often break it out on Good Friday. And appropriately so, because it speaks of the servant Savior that God would send to bear our sin and rebellion. It's a longer passage, but we're just going to look at verses 3 through 6, beginning in verse 3. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and by, with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So, in this picture, we see that God's people could not redeem themselves. They could not make right the wrongs they committed. They couldn't wash away the stain of sin and rebellion. So God was going to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves. 
He was going to send this righteous, sinless servant to take upon himself the punishment for the sins of his people. He would be a man of many sorrows, we're told. He would be despised and rejected on their behalf. He would be pierced for their crimes, Isaiah said, put to death for their rebellion and wounded so that they might be healed. The love and grace of God for his people would be incarnated in this servant Savior. But who would this servant be? Who could possibly bear the sins of another, of others, and take the punishment that was due them in their place? And who, who was this coming king who would set all to rights? How could the divine author give this story a happy ending? These questions bring us back to where we began, a synagogue in Nazareth, some 700 years after Isaiah breathed his last. The scroll of the prophet opened to chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Of course, they didn't have chapter back then. And Jesus reading to those gathered around him. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So here we see the smaller pictures give way to a greater image. As Isaiah's gospel mosaic begins to take shape. In declaring this world word, excuse me, fulfilled, Jesus was asserting that everything Isaiah had promised was coming true in him. Where the story was darkest, he would bring about a sudden and happy turn. Where king after king failed to lead the people in righteousness, justice, and peace, he would succeed once and for all. Where sin, death, and the enemy seemed to hold sway, he would overcome because they could not hold him. And in so doing, he would make a way for his people to be forgiven and made new. This is the gospel of Isaiah. This is the good news that the prophet glimpsed from afar, that Jesus Christ, the divine author of Israel's story, the true king and better David, the servant savior, the son of God, God himself was coming. And his advent would usher in the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, when all debts would be forgiven, all slaves would be set free, all hearts would be mended, and even sin itself would be washed away. And it was in the light of his coming on the horizon that Isaiah called the people to hope, called them to persevere and to repent, most of all, to repent to abandon the lies they'd bought into, to turn from the false gods that they, they clung to, and to exchange their selfishness, their greed, and their lust for something better. In chapter 55, verse 1, the prophet exclaims, 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why, he pleads, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. See, the gospel of Isaiah at its heart is a message of invitation, a call to the people of his generation and every generation that followed to lay hold of God's grace and love, to turn from sin and believe that God was truly the author of their story, and that he was and would always be their true king and savior. And what's more, the gospel of Isaiah is also a promise. A promise that even though the whole of creation is now broken, the creator is still at work and he's making all things new. A day is coming when this gospel will be made known throughout all the earth, Isaiah says. All the nations of the world will hear it and peoples from even the most distant lands will sing new songs of celebration to the God of Israel. Toward the end of his book, Isaiah captures this promise several times and in several ways, but never more poignantly than in chapter 65, verses 17 and following, or 17 through 19, where he records these words of the Lord. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Creation will one day be restored and made new by its creator. And so good and so beautiful will this new creation be that the old will be forgotten. The damage of our sin will have been utterly washed away by the shed blood of God's servant Savior. The memory of evil kings and wicked regimes will come to nothing under the just and righteous rule of our true and coming king. And the darkness and the sadness of our present story and stories will be driven out forever by the light of he who is to come, whose very brilliance, we're told, will outshine the sun by day and the moon by night. On that day, the gospel of Isaiah will be complete, and we, along with the prophet, will behold with open eyes the wondrous reality that this mosaic depicts. We'll see Jesus face to face, and all other images will fade. In the words of the Jesus Storybook Bible from uh, the Isaiah chapter, Operation No More Tears, everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Amen? Amen.